I never thought I could find a job making money by being creative. And then I never thought that I could infuse my passion for the outdoors and for animals with my work. And here I am, and it's just suddenly combined into this thing. So what I would like to say to students and maybe designers that are established, it's tap into your passion and values and bring it into your work because we need everyone to speak up now. We need to have those values represented. We can't just base our decisions off of what has been done in the past because it's a new time. Don't be afraid to step into that and to, to let the path follow you, let you bring you to a point where you suddenly wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this. It's an exciting path and it's worthwhile. It might be scary, but it's absolutely worthwhile. Welcome to another episode of the Design Dedux podcast. I am your host, Peter Bella. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Central Arkansas, a creative director, and also the founder of Twist Creative Studio. Michelle Feller is a clinical assistant professor at the Design School at the Herberger Institute for Design and the Arts. Michelle is a biomimicry professional and a visual communication designer who is passionate about connecting nature's strategies to design. Her goal is to enable designers to tap into this vast database of inspiration in order to find innovation and creative solutions. Her research focuses on defining a life-centered design thinking methodology that allows the infusion of biomimicry thinking into the traditional human-centered design process. She is looking at various tools and processes that make the biomedic approach more accessible to designers. As a clinical assistant professor at the design school at Arizona State University, she teaches various multidisciplinary design studios, lectures, and seminars to undergraduate and graduate students. In addition, she teaches a practicum course as part of the master's biomimicry program at ASU. She has presented her work at various conferences such as the World Usability Day, AIGA Y Conference, AIGA Phoenix Design Week, Sustainable UX, Audubon Society, Liberty Wildlife, and Target HQ. Her work has been published in the Cooper Hewitt Summer 2019 Design Journal, as well as in the Design Journal, a peer-reviewed international journal. Michelle and I have a great conversation on biomimicry and the idea of nature as inspiration. I hope you enjoy this episode. Michelle, thank you for joining us on the Design Dedux podcast. It's so great to finally have you here having the conversation with me. We've only been talking about it since, I think, August uh, or yeah. something like that. So it's, um, you know, it, it found its way to the right time for both of us. So uh, glad to finally have you uh, here on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm very happy it worked out. Yeah, it's going to be exciting too. Uh, your your research background is really interesting. And uh, it's going to be great to kind of hear how that relates to um, what you're doing uh, with design as well. So if you if you could, for context, talk to us a little bit about how you got into design education. Yeah, so it's been a little bit of a roundabout path. Um, I, I'm originally from Switzerland and I um, was always kind of drawn to creativity, but was never imagining that I could make that a job or a career. And so I was working in Switzerland, um, organizing conferences for large companies and um, just living my life. And then I felt the need to go travel abroad somewhere. That's a common thing that people do in Europe. They go away for six months and then they experience something else. And so I um, decided to come to Phoenix because my mom was originally from Phoenix, Arizona, where she grew up. Okay. So I thought six months, side stint, and then I'll be back. But then um, I started going to school here and really, really enjoyed the education that I got here. It just was so much more fun to go to school. I was at a community college even, just a little, small little community college, and I was enjoying my classes. I was actually majoring in, in meteorology first. Oh, okay. And ge geography, and that came easy to me. And then I got, um, actually it was my mom who found a degree in graphic design, and I mm. looked into that and was fascinated and got into you know that program. It was part of a film school, so there was a little bit of a film side to it as well. Okay. And I finished that, and then the the chance was that I um, was going to school in a, in Arizona, where there's a Arizona State University who has a very good high quality design program that is based off the Swiss design. And I didn't even know that there's such a thing as Swiss design, actually, because it was just something that was everyday life for us in Switzerland. Sure, but, sure. Um, it was kind of fun to discover that. And I did my bachelor's there and then um, worked as a graphic designer. I did get a little frustrated with some of the things that we do in our discipline in terms of littering the world with, you know, 
beautiful pieces that might last a couple of seconds in people's hands and then they get this discarded, hopefully recycled in many cases, sometimes not. But yeah. so I wanted to go back and get a master's to look into how graphic design could be done to help companies promote services and products without littering the world with trash. Um, and so I attended a talk in AIGA Y conference in San Diego where I heard about biomimicry. And it actually was kind of the, the visual of that's what it is, what I was looking for. It was the, the core of all of the searches that I've been doing and my passion and everything, it brought everything together. So I pursued a master's in biomimicry in the design school. And through being there, you know, right time, right place, they had an opening for a lecture position and I applied for it. And because I had gone through that um, bachelor's program there, they, they felt it was a good choice to hire me, luckily. And so I've been teaching ever since. Um, so, yeah, it's been a really wild journey and really all along the way, just really enjoyable. All around. That's awesome. Then I, I need personally and also to help our viewers and listeners understand um, biomimicry. Can you, yeah. can you give us, a, a, you know, some information on that background? Yeah. How does that, how so, does it, and even how that relates to design, which is the second half, but. Yeah. So biomimicry in itself is a, it's not a new thing that we do as homo sapiens, but it is a new discipline in academia. Um, it's, it's a word that consists of two words, bio meaning life and mimicry meaning mimicking. So in a way okay. we're mimicking nature and Many people are like, oh, you know, I get it. It's there's this butterfly that mimics the morpho butterfly with the same colors so that it's the same detracting to the birds because the morpho butterfly is toxic to birds. And yes, that is mimicry as well, but that's nature mimicking nature um, in biology. For us, we're part of nature as well, but we have human systems that we're trying to adjust to work as if it was nature. Some of our systems do not work like nature. Um, or at least don't follow the natural rules that everyone else lives by. And so um, we're trying to mimic nature for improvements in terms of sustainability in human systems. So biomimicry cannot, it's not a discipline on its own. Okay. Yes, you can, you can study biology, you can learn from nature, but then you want to apply it to something. And people are applying it to chemistry, architecture, social innovation, business models, design, architecture, all kinds of different areas. So it's, you can apply it uh, with a formal translation where you look at forms in nature and you make something more efficient. Okay. Or you look, or you look yeah, at systems yeah. where you look at the whole system and you mimic the whole system. So it, it, it's applied at different various levels. Okay. The, the first one I have heard of and seen, um, you know, kind of mimicking what you see in nature through, through design. I think that one... Um, it, that's been around for at least a few, uh, well, that's probably yeah. been around for more than decades. That's probably been around for centuries. I'm, I'm certain. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah we've, but, I mean, uh, native people, um, Aborigines, native Americans, all kinds of native cultures, they've always done that. They've always looked to how nature does something and then they mimicked that in, as much as they could. So it's not, mm -hmm. as I said, it's not a new thing. Right. In a way, it's going back to that root to being connected to nature and, you know. And that said, okay. it's not, yeah. so that part that I was just talking about is just one third of what biomimicry is. That's the emulation part. But we also have a reconnection component to biomimicry where it's asking us to spend time in nature, observe and connecting with it um, again. Some people okay. have been so removed from nature that we're, living such yeah. a separate life that it's, it's a reconnect for some people. It's a connect for the first time. And then the okay. third part is the ethos where it looks at how we respect nature and how do we see nature or ourselves as part of the bigger system? Do we see ourselves as above it? Do we see ourselves as part of it? And if okay. we were to mimic something, do we pay respect to the models that have been shared? That mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to talk about those two really, really quick. The reconnect sure. then. Yeah. Um, now with you having, uh, the influence of Swiss design just by growing up in Switzerland, yeah. um, how, how do you think that's been part of the Swiss design then? Um, of course, you know, the first image I go to is Herbert Bear's um, uh, piece, uh, 
oh gosh, I'm all of a sudden drawing a blank of that was for a win a promotion for winter in uh one of the towns, right? One of the cities. Engelberg, yes. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the poster style was kind of the style of the, the, the artwork back then. Um, and yes, they I mean Switzerland has a lot of tourism that it lives off from. So a lot of the graphic design expressions were focused on touristic you know, advertising in that way. And mm -hmm. what better way to advertise for something than beautiful nature that we have in Switzerland? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. So is there, do you think there was that, that reconnect or has it always been part of the Swiss culture? You know, I feel that, so what I've personally experienced from moving to Phoenix, Arizona in specific, I can't talk to any other city of how it would have been, but moving from Switzerland to Phoenix was a big change in terms of I felt that I was experiencing nature on a daily basis in Switzerland. I was walking to work. I was maybe biking to work. I was spending time at lunch at the lake. I was watching the, the ducks and the swans, and I was seeing the four seasons. And then moving to Phoenix, it almost took an extra effort to schedule time outside. So hiking is something that is done here on the weekends or early morning before work, but you take your car and you drive to the, to the trailhead. Um, and so it felt a little bit separated and maybe that was the driver that actually made me more passionate about finding that one piece that allows me to live out my mm -hmm. outdoor side again, because the Swiss are always outdoors. I mean, there's, they don't necessarily have to reconnect the way people here in Arizona have to, but it's a different mm -hmm. climate as well. But yes, the, I mean, all the outdoor activities, they hiking and skiing and just being outdoors is part of life there on a daily basis. Even going grocery wow. shopping, you walk through a park. You might see some birds and stuff, but here not so much because yeah. Arizona is really car driven, car heavy designed. And you just go from an air conditioned house to an air conditioned car to an air conditioned business and right, air conditioned right. movie theaters. And so, yeah, it took extra effort to go outside. Wow. And that's, that discrepancy kind of was maybe the driver why I felt so passionate about it. Yeah. And I love the outdoors. So all of a sudden now I feel like I'm missing out and I'm even really enjoying my uh, new location here in Arkansas, which is oh, a very, yes. well, it's called the natural state. And uh, my wife and I are always going out hiking. And, uh, but just what you're, you're speaking of with that idea that, yeah, we still go from A to B to do the activity. Mm -hmm. And it's yeah. just not a part of that everyday life. So right. yeah, that had to be yeah. a huge transition. So then was, that, yeah. then then I, I didn't mean to uh, interrupt you if you had more to say. Then. No, 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 yeah. no, I just said it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that makes me kind of pause and think, well, now you talk about the ethos of it and how that, you know, really affected you. So how, um, tell me a little bit about some of the research projects you're doing then that are talking about that reconnect and talking about the ethos. Yeah. So, you know, I've done my first master's. I have two master's. One of them was in design, looking at biomimicry, and the other one was in biomimicry, applying it to design. Um, mainly okay. because when I first started my master's in biomimicry, there was no master's in biomimicry, so I kind of designed my okay. own. But the first conclusion in certain ways was that um, it was really hard to apply it to graphic design, um, mainly because maybe my understanding of it was a little bit more limited than it is now. But it was more about how we as designers can be more creative, more productive, more successful if we do reconnect to nature. And then through the reconnection to nature, we will gain that ethos that we need in order to make the right decisions on a daily basis that we make every time we design something or even just at home in the private life. So, you know, just one thing that I've learned a lot through working with nature is that I see the connections. There's a lot of, everything's connected. Yeah. Every action has a reaction. And it's really evident when, when you look at um, any, you know, whether you should buy a new iPhone, whether you should print something 20,000 or 50,000 pieces, or if you, what size you're going to print it on, or yeah. just all those little decisions that we make based on maybe budget or past projects or what the client wants. In a way, it would be beautiful if we could also ask nature, um, how would you like it and what would be the best for you? And how would you hire me again after this project? Uh, because maybe those decisions were based off of how nature functions and the, the consequences weren't as big as they could have been otherwise. So my research really focuses on how 
I can help graphic design students to tap into that inner kind of um, desire to be connected to nature again and to see ourselves as a, a component of a really large connected system, complex mm-hmm. system, and then how it can express itself through the emulation in their work. Um, yeah. And trying to do it so that it doesn't take too much time out of their day, you know, because it's sure. not everyone is a biologist. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a biologist, so it takes a lot of time to learn about that. But it's really important that they get some tools to get started and, and to see themselves as part of nature. That's kind of the biggest thing. So um, yeah, going outside, r- yeah, going outside was the main takeaway from the first master's. <laughs> oh, wow. That. Yeah. That sounds really exciting. I think I'm going to try to, you know, think about how I can put some of that into, into my coursework as well. Uh, and one of the, one of the things that I kind of pull back and, and think about is, um, the effort put into it and the results and our outcomes from that. When I think one of the biggest challenges is American society, right? There's cultural norms. Can, can we, can we change those cultural norms? Can we affect the society thinking and is there is there progress have you seen progress are are we are we getting through in this in this yeah. uh, method yeah so i guess the <clears throat> biggest learning that i've had it, it, along that line is to be patient um similar to if you've ever grown vegetables yourself i mean you you tend to the soil, you pick out the spot where it gets a right amount of sun. It might be protected in the summertime here in Phoenix, but then you make sure that the soil has the right conditions and then you put the seed into the ground, but then you can't reap the fruit the next day. Um, and so it's the same thing I've had to learn because sometimes I felt in the beginning, I felt frustrated because I was like, I'm doing all this work and nothing is happening. But Um, looking to nature again, you know, everything at its own time and tending to it and giving it water and making sure it's protected and making sure that the the pests are not overtaking it Mm -hmm. is the same effort that we're doing with teaching to plant the seed in the student's head, um, giving them the the permission to allow themselves to want to go out into nature. It's not a separate thing. It can be part of their job description as is keeping up with Adobe software. Um, and to give it time, because I've noticed now that I've been teaching this for about five years, that some students come back to me and write me beautiful emails about how much they so appreciate it now, and they're seeing the connections, and they're applying it, and they just had this win at work where they were able to bring something from biomimicry to it. And so it takes a lot more time than we think. And in a way, you're, mm-hmm. you're very right. I think the the current culture right now is the instant gain, the quarterly mm-hmm. stakeholders' satisfaction, and the you know, the drive to, I'm going to do something and then there's going to be a reaction right away and I'm going to see the, the benefits of it. Right. It's not, that's right. not how it works. And so we have to give it time and we have to be patient. We have to keep planting those seeds and just give it the right, you know, space and nutrients. Uh, yeah, I think that's important. The, the cultivation of our young people that are in college now in kind of getting past that instant gratification mindset mm-hmm. that it does yeah. take time to cultivate perhaps that's going to be the biggest fuel, the biggest driver for the next generation, you know, yeah. as they, as they raise their children and, and so on. You, yeah. you said an interesting combination of words. You put keeping up with Adobe software and nature into the same sentence. Yeah. So does nature always mean I'm going to go sit out in a forest or in Phoenix, perhaps, uh, among the cactus, uh, on the rocks, so mm, yeah yeah in, the optimal, it, in an optimal case maybe yes <clears throat> it depends on what you want to choose as your connection piece it could also mean taking a break and watching a david attenborough documentary it could also mean just you know when you walk from your car to your work or to your school to pay attention to what's happening with the bushes that line your sidewalk it doesn't have to, you don't have to pack your bags and go into a park, you know, national park to, to be able to be in nature. Mm-hmm. Um, nature is all around us. And just even looking out your window to seeing, are there any birds in the trees? When are the bushes blooming and when are the bees attracted to it? Those kinds of things will help with the connection as well. And those are daily things again. Those are the ones that we can see and observe over a period of time. And um, yeah, it doesn't take extra yeah. time out of our schedule. It just you pay attention, you know, it's just a simple, uh, 
allowing yourself to pay attention. Yeah, it's awareness. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, boy, I don't know how many times that I've I've thought that as I'm taking that stroll from our parking lot to our building, the grounds on our campus are just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. So every morning in that walk, you know, I'm taking a deeper breath, looking at the trees, uh, watching the birds, and uh, I see the people yeah. around. Yeah, but you, you know, and I, and I think you'll agree. You see the people around you, and they're just yeah. target ahead. You know, yeah, A to B, yeah. uh, or they're on their phone and not even looking up. And yeah. it's tragic. Yeah. It's tragic in a way. Yeah, it's kind of. I mean, it's just again, like you said, it's an awareness piece, and also for some students, I've realized it's an allowing, where maybe they felt that they have to focus on school and they have to be on top of everything. They have a to do list. They have all these homework pieces to do. But on the other hand, you know, taking 10 minutes to sit quietly somewhere is not slacking. It's not um, being lazy. It's restoring and it's, you know, being a good citizen on this planet to to connect with what's around you. And not just through yeah. digital interfaces, but also through just the, the, real, the real interface. And with that, also, I have to tell you that the first time I went into a jungle was part of a class that I uh, was a student in in my master's program. And we were in the jungle in Panama, in the canal area, and we had biologists with us. And the biologist kept seeing things. She, could, she kept taking pictures of insects and, and you know, uh, reptiles and things. And I saw the pictures at the end of the day, and I'm like, were we on the, on the same path? Because I didn't see any of that. Wow. And so with time, as a biologist, she was trained to look for specific you know, areas where she knew this is a great habitat for this kind of fly, or this is a great habitat for a frog. And she, w- she knew how to look, but that comes with time. And so it's the same. I'm noticing that now with my students, when we walk, I do biomimicry hikes. I call them hikes, but they're really strolls um, and, because we're really slow. And so yeah. I see things and then people often say, how did you even see that? And it's, it's a practice. It's a muscle that you have to develop. And it's, it starts with just what you're doing, just appreciating your moment and being outside and just, you know, taking in what's around you. And that's how it starts. That's yeah. a, a biomimic in the making. That way. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you bring that up too, because that's the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is what does that look like in the classroom? Is there um, project-based work? How does that, how do those strolls then become something that's integrated into the project work? So, how, yeah. you know, how are you bringing those two together? Yeah. So I've, done something called guerrilla biomimicry in the beginning because I didn't have a biomimicry class to teach it. So I, I had a design studio and I started taking students outside. We did a meditation at the beginning of each studio. So we have a little spot on campus that is called the secret garden. Um, it sounds way more mysterious than it is. It's a, it's a courtyard inside of a building that has a grass lawn area, some trees, some flowers, and it's fully surrounded. So you have to go underneath the building to get into there. That's the Oh, interesting. Part. Um, and so we, I take students there to meditate at the beginning of the studio. That's what I did for one semester. And through that, they started craving that moment to start class by being outdoors and by hearing the birds and by just having a mindful moment. So then, um, we also teach something called a a global engagement studio, which takes graduate students away to a different country for a week and then they learn things there and then they bring that back to a studio project. And we did a mindfulness studio based in biomimicry in Switzerland one year where we we looked at design and we looked at how mindful it was and then we learned from nature how nature solves problems and those three components together then defined mindful moments that they designed for our design building at ASU. So that was a mm. that was a nice kind of like fusion of mindfulness, design, and biomimicry. Right now, I'm teaching the global design studio still with visual communication designers. And I'm looking at, so this semester, we traveled to Copenhagen to focus on sustainability and biomimicry. And in specific, the the UN Sustainability Development Goals. And the students are, you know, learning about the life's principles in biomimicry and how it how it expresses itself in design. And now they're choosing their capstone that they have to complete by May. And through the life's principles, which is a set of 26 summarizing rules of how nature functions, they will design their capstone project that has some kind of intervention to solve a social issue. Um, oh, so they, interesting. 
Yeah, so they don't have to learn about the biology necessarily because we have um, the life's principles that are already summarizing patterns, deep patterns in nature that students can tap into. So that's a little faster than learning the biology of it. Um, But really a colleague of mine, Darren Petrucci, who I love to teach with, he calls them just really good design principles because it's things like, um, you know, be locally attuned or use resource um, local resources for your to save energy and material or to build cooperative relationships. Um, so those kinds of patterns are in nature that all the organisms are following those rules. Our designs don't, don't always follow all of those rules, but by working with them from the beginning consciously, it influences the design decisions and it, it has a big influence on the design outcome. That's okay. That sounds really exciting. Um, just using um the context of nature to solve problems in society um is really interesting do you have any examples of some of the um uh outcomes that that have come through this yeah so we have um one example that i love sharing uh was done by zq who was a master student a couple years back and she had this notebook that she she loves to sketch and to write down things and, but she was always getting sad whenever her notebook came to an end, when it was full and she had to start a new one. Hmm. So she wanted to know how does nature design a notebook for designers? And she designed, um, she looked at all the life's principles and she made decisions based on those. So she designed a handmade book that has no glue that can continue to grow. So you use signatures to continually adding pages to it. Her pages were very diverse. She had different pages for writing, different pages for sketching. Some of the designs for the sketching pages were based on nature. So she had organic kind of faint patterns in the background. Um, it also had multiple functions. It ha- had a measurement tool built in, a, a pen holder, um, an ability to change out the, the cover um, really mm-hmm. easily by just sliding in an image. Um, and then... Once you do feel you're done with it, you can take it all apart and it can compost on the compost pile because it was all just uncoated cardboard or paper, no ink or anything. Um, So that was was one of the projects that was featured in the Cooper Hewitt Design Journal this summer. And yeah, yeah, so that was a really nice example. Another one was done by Eve Villier, who was an undergraduate student, and she was asked to design an exhibit for a a new center at ASU, the Biomimicry Center that's just started off. And they wanted to have a way to travel with pieces that um, communicate about biomimicry that are flexible, can change size, are lightweight, can easily be replaced. Because in the beginning, when you first start a center, the information could easily change really quickly. So they wanted to have the ability to change out information on it. So also she looked at the life's principles and she came up with this card stacking uh, method to allow for um, easy assembly. The, the container that holds all the pieces was also the carrying piece and it protected the pieces. It was printed directly onto falcon board, um, which was corrugated. It's like cardboard, but it has a, a flat surface that you can print directly onto it. So no adhesive needed in oh, addition wow. to get the graphics on there. And one board can easily be replaced and reprinted if it needs to be you know, updated. And then you can change the layout of it. Um, some conferences allow for a lot of space, where it could be expanded horizontally, it could be vertical, it could be small, it could be big, um, and it was quite affordable. So she That's did exciting. a really good job with that. Yeah, yeah, and those it, are exciting pieces. And some of these pieces, you could easily say, yeah, well, we could have come up with that idea without biomimicry. And the yes, absolutely. Um, in a way, though, if so as designers, I feel that we have sources of inspiration that we look to. So we look to our favorite designers. We look at to our own work. We look to our hobbies to get inspiration, whatever that is, whether it's cooking or car racing or whatever. Um, but then adding to that arsenal of inspiration could be nature. And then mm-hmm. if you do that in the beginning of a project where you say, okay, I really want my design to be locally attuned or I want my design to build a cooperative relationship with someone else. Then it changes the questions we're asking during the design process enough to maybe bring about other ideas that we might have not discovered otherwise. And in some ways, there's a life's principle evaluation at the end where you can actually test to see how 
happy nature will be with the results or how sustainable the piece is at the end, how many life's principles were followed by it. So it's yeah. the conscious emulation from the beginning that is the biomimicry. That's, that's fantastic. Cause I would have, I would have brought up the same thing. Uh, if I was to continue that conversation, like, well, yeah. we could have done this without biomimicry. Yeah. Yes. But, but the design process, you, I mean, I think you hit it exactly. If yeah. we add that into our design process as part of our research, part of our analysis yeah. and thinking about the information we've gained from it, it's going to change the outcome. Yeah. So sure. One could say that you could come up with those results without it, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't have been the same. It, you know, it would have been a different outcome. Uh, right. I think it adds right. to the value. Yeah. And again, my goal is not to make designers make more beautiful, more sustainable pieces alone. I want designers to be happy people and healthy people. I want designers mm -hmm. to spend time outside hiking, you know, having healthy bodies um, and to be really creative and happy. And so by training that muscle to go to nature at the beginning of a project, will add that hidden benefit to it. It's a stress reliever. It's, mm -hmm. um, you know, physically it helps. And that in turn will make us more creative. And so um, in addition to that, it helps us ask different questions. So one example that I like to use is the, um, the idea of a, a water bottle, for example, for an industrial designer. If a client comes to an industrial designer and says, we want to design a new water bottle, and you start there to say, okay, how else could we design this bottle? Then you will get a certain amount of ideas. Mm -hmm. But if you were to say, why do we even need a water bottle? What is the ultimate function that we're trying to solve for is it to store water or is it to transport water or is it to collect water and all those different questions might bring about the idea that we might not need a bottle maybe we need some other contraption that helps us mm -hmm. to collect the water or to store it or to transport it in a different way um so yeah. having that approach on to look to ask nature how do you do it and then asking ourselves could we mimic that in our design and what is it that we're really trying to solve for will help to get innovative ideas that have not been maybe explored before. Definitely. Uh, so some of the examples, I'm going to give you a challenge now. So some okay. of the examples, um, well, both examples were a physical outcome uh, yes. product, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to do it. You know, I've looked at some of the classes you're teaching, mm -hmm. right? Visual communication. I think that's a great class to, uh, get some of those outcomes, sustainability. That's, that's perfect as well. Yeah. Um, design layout. Sure. Through that connection with nature, you know, we can sit back then and then think about, um, the, our composition and how it's inspired. Sure. The two that I'm wondering about one more than another one typography, cause I'm very passionate about type. Um, it's yes. a big part of, uh, of my work. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you have motion graphics. And then you also have, um, I thought I seen, um, let's see, oh, vir the virtual design lab, advanced yeah. interaction. So how do we then, like some of the examples, as you were talking about, are physical. Yes. How do we then get these inspirations through digital stuff? Right. So is there is there is there a connection then that you're pushing on the, on the digital end, interaction, yes. virtual? Absolutely. Yeah, so there the two examples that I worked with that I gave you were came out of the senior the, the graduate student or the senior the senior design studios. So they were physical manifestations because of the nature of the class. However, in the interaction design class, for example, um, those life principles can be applied to non-physical pieces as well. And it has more to do with um, for example, the locally attuned idea. Um, if you look at an app, it's these days you can step into your car and the phone realizes you're in the car. So it only gives you the options of doing limited things that are healthy or safe in the car. So it actually is locally attuned to realize that now you're driving and now we need to limit the access to certain applications or, um, you know, so biomimicry can be applied to more strategy ideas and it's sometimes a little bit metaphorical. For example, if you, um, took the idea that you wanted to attract more customers to a service. Um, can you look at temporal elements within your product or service that would attract certain people more likely than at other times? So um, instead of just, you know, trying to spread out your message at any 
and at any time, you have certain moments, whether that is seasonal or journal, meaning daily, or even over a whole lifetime kind of time frame, that you can reach those customers a little bit better than at other times. And so um, th- there, is, there is a way to apply biomimicry a little bit more abstract, I guess it is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the idea that one other one that works really well for graphic design and for UX or interaction is the cooperative relationship one. Um, could your product, you know, help someone else while it's helping you? And so it, it often brings up a good conversation about competition where, you know, we've been told since the beginning of this last century that competition is the, the fittest that will survive. And businesses love this idea of the lion in the desert, just like killing everything in its path and being the king of the, you know, the environment. But it turns out nature is actually not engaging in as much competition as we thought at first or as those stories portray it has more to do with in the beginning of something there is competition to establish your niche but once you do have your niche in nature then there's more of a collaborative and cooperative kind of engagement mutualism symbiotic relationships Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm, same for businesses if we look at how in marketing you know how um, companies could tap into a partner that they otherwise wouldn't uh, in order to help yourself and another partner and then attract a different kind of audience, then that is a cooperative relationship that could help move the product or service to the next level. And designers could be, I see designers as the ones that are the strategic thinkers behind those kinds of ideas. And so I think we we definitely have moved beyond just creating an artifact and then being done with our job. We definitely are the yeah. problem solvers that can see the systems and we can specify moments at which we can intervene and then we can have an intervention that has multiple side effects in a, in a positive way. Um, and biomimicry, really, those life principles help a lot in finding those solutions to those strategic problems that we can explore within design. So um, there's so many opportunities for this to have uh, such an impact uh, mm-hmm. on our society, uh, globally, nationally, regional, locally, um, mm-hmm. even in our own small little niche neighborhoods uh, that w- that we all belong to. Um, but as as I'm sitting here listening to this, I'm also aware of, you know, with every opportunity, there's also a threat. Mm-hmm. So, w- w- what do you see as threats to to this method? Um, you know, first the first and biggest one is the fact that it's maybe hard to do in the beginning. It's hard to see those connections. It's hard to learn how nature functions. It takes time. And not many people have the luxury of investing that time into yet another design process. Um, And so that's kind of where my research comes in. I'm looking at tools and methods that, I don't like to use the word shortcuts, but that kind of Mm -hmm. can allow people to tap into the possible solution space in a quicker way, depending on what their project is all about. Um, So I developed a set of cards for visual communications designers that asks specific questions based on certain organisms to kind of get your creative juices and thinking going. Um, And I'll continue to test different tools for that. But that's, I would say that's the biggest threat that people might be excited about it and they want to do it, but it takes time to learn it. And so that's, you know, that's the, that's the one that I'm trying to bridge. Um, The other thing that I've noticed is that a lot of not a lot of people, but there are always a couple of students in my class who are not necessarily so fond of spending time out in nature. Um, and it's funny because when I do kind of nudge them along a little bit and within their comfort zone, they, they tend to step out further than I thought they would. And then they get all excited about it. And then they come back with just voluntary time that they spent out in nature and they, they, um, they start to appreciate it. So in, in a way, it takes a little bit of groundwork to get people interested in wanting to do this kind of work and to do spend time in nature when you don't understand it or you might be scared of it or you just never done it or you just don't think it's anything that you're interested in. So that's the other, that's the other side of our culture that is okay with not having a connection to nature right now, which I'm hoping we can change. And I think yeah. it will change because a lot of, um, a lot of schools, K through 12, are now 
looking into how you can take the classroom outdoors and integrating playtime and, you know, having gardens to have lunch programs. And so I think the newest generation coming up will not have that barrier to, to spend time in nature as much as maybe the current generation. Yeah. Does. I, I hope so as well. It's even fantastic how you're talking about getting connected with nature and uh, the roosters in your neighborhood are outside uh, <laughs> letting us know that they belong there too. Um, <laughs> yeah, they want to be part of the conversation. Yeah, definitely. They're welcome to be here. Um, oh, thank you. So I, I seen one of the publication pieces that you were working on called Nature's mm -hmm. Notebook. Was that the project that you were talking about earlier or is that something yes. a little different? No, that was the same one. That was the same one. Yeah, that was and the then, same one. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. The Hidden Treasures one was... Yeah, that's a different one. Okay. What was that? Um, so the Hidden Treasure to? was a workshop that we gave yes, at the yes. um, Natural History Museum in Dundee, Scotland. And it was part of the European um, Academy of Design conference that looked at sustainability. And they had a biomimicry track even, which was really exciting. Oh, wow. There's a lot of activity in biomimicry going on in Europe. And so a colleague of mine, Clint Pennick, who is a biologist, he's trained in social insects and ants and things like that. He um, did this with me where we felt that, like we were talking in the beginning, not everyone has the time to go outside into nature or not everyone mm -hmm. can have a backpack and just go out and hike right. um, a trail. Well, and so it's, it's interesting though, that because I've met so many people like that. It's like, hey, we're going to go camping. And they're like, ew, you're going to sleep on the ground, you know? Yes, yes, but, yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's interesting. But they'll go out on their back patio and soak in the sun yes. and take in the beautiful breeze, yes. you know? Yeah, okay. that's, that's the same. That's the spending time in nature yeah. is being outside, not being surrounded by a certain barrier that separates you from the outside. Exactly, right. Any, anything goes. Right, okay, continue. But this, this one was held at a natural history museum, which are like the title suggests, the hidden treasures, because not many people are tapping into them. And there's a humongous amount of information that we can learn from those species that they have in those museums. And so we did an exercise in that museum to get designers to think about how they can tap into the animals and the fauna that they have in, the, um, in those collections. And many times, those natural history collection museums, you know, when I say that word, many people might think immediately of like, dusty old um, vitrines with, you know, just some dead animal or skeleton or a skin of a snake or something behind a glass. And, you know, Natural History Collection Museums have been the one repository of the local living species around. And they're the ones that collect and catalog all that information. And we're now tapping into those in order to find out what effect climate change is having on a certain area with that kind of time record. So there is a function of natural history collections that they can bring to the conversation today and they need support. And one way that we feel, Clint and I felt, um, designers can have a shortcut to what nature does is by going to those natural history collection museums and to learning from the people who work there and from the information that is already written out, already presented in a nice curated way in order to get inspiration for their design projects. So it was a uh, it was about a two hour workshop, and we had about twelve attendees, and it was really successful. We got some survey back afterwards, and there's a lot of demand for it, and they were excited to do it more. And you know, even just starting your own collection at home to to have your own pieces that you collect that inspire you, mm -hmm. and to tap into those when you're doing design. But yeah, um, supporting those museums is a great way to help someone else while you're helping yourself to get inspiration. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, did you um, see the latest call for entries for the AIGA uh, conference for 2020? No, I have not looked at it yet. Ah, yeah. Well, the, um, the call for um, submissions has ended, but I all of a sudden was just thinking this would have uh, been a great piece for that because they're, the conversation is bridging the physical and the digital. And uh, yeah. I, as, as you're talking about this, I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, th this yes. is bridging the physical and the bridging. digital, yeah, not, yeah, not yeah. only in the end product, but in, in our reality. The you process. Know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the process. The source too. of inspiration. Yeah. yeah um, I've actually participated. I've presented at the AIGA conference in San Diego one year, and then I presented here in Phoenix Design Week by AIGA 
with, I normally do, so this was the first year, but I'll do it again if they'll have me again, but do that biomimicry hike. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was a lot of response from those presentations that they wanted to have a little bit more how-to instruction. And so I think you're right. It would be worth it one year to do that kind of um, workshop. Yeah, with the design design educators. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That would be wonderful. Good idea. Um, I also had down here, The human, the human centered process. But I, I think that in my notes, I think that makes sense, um, you know, through our conversation. Um, so looking forward then, where, where do you see the next steps? Is there, is there more work on this? Uh, is it changing, morphing into anything? Or is it just compounding and building on what you've uh, already been working through? So I would love to have some partners in crime, <laughs> if anybody's interested, okay. to um, dive into this because um, there's not many of us doing this kind of work specifically for visual communication design. There's a friend of mine in Brazil. Um, there's a couple of people here, but it's not really doesn't have that momentum yet. Um, I really would love to connect more with designers who want to learn how to do it, and. Um, Also to kind of test out those tools that I'm developing to see, because I'm testing it on students. Mm -hmm. However, the students have not developed their own design process yet. They're still kind of forming how they're going to work. And in some ways, that data is not as conclusive as it could be if I were to work with established designers who have their design process and their, their, you know, ways of of solving problems. Um, I'm going to continue working on building a repository of ideas for visual communication through those tools that I'm developing in order to kind of pave the way to make it a little bit easier. Um, I also would like to, one thing that always gives me a little bit of that goosebumps or that like stand hair on my neck kind of thing is when we do talk about human-centered design versus life-centered design, Mm -hmm. because um, that it suggests, and I know it's not, but it suggests that humans are the center of everything. And Yes, we're designing for ourselves, and but are we respecting the other ninety nine percent of species on this same planet? Which is, it's a it's a closed loop system, and we have to get along with everyone else. And if we were to look around us to see who's around, all the species that have been around and have evolved over the last almost four billion years, there are some lessons that we can tap into in order to stay around a little bit longer. And so. I would love it if we would start calling it the life-centered design because, yes, we're part of nature. And so if we're designing it for us, it should also be conducive for other life to thrive Um, rather than the human-centered, which takes the human need and puts it in the first position. Mm, Yeah. Um, But it's oftentimes not. It oftentimes would be nice to include what kind of effect it has on the ecosystem that surrounds that and how could we also include them as with their needs. Yeah, and that was that was the other word on my notes, and I should have I should have yeah. brought that up. That life centered, life centered design thinking uh, from from your bio at the uh, Arizona State University it says we're on there defining a life centered design thinking uh, through biomimicry and human centered process. So yes. yeah, and yeah. I don't want to say that's the the first time that I've heard the 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 concept or the idea. Um, but I think it's the first time that I've actually heard someone, you know, just put that right there, life-centered. And yeah. sure, human-centered is fantastic, and I'm glad we're doing it. Absolutely. But, we needed but it. that life-centered yeah. is is fantastic. Um, yeah. Is there any... And it's not, it's probably the, not necessary for all the projects. It's just when we talk in general about design process and what we can do and what we can kind of explore including all of life in addition to homo sapiens would be a good approach in general. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, and I hope that continues to build momentum. And uh, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, going, Ooh, maybe this is something that, that Mm. I have an interest in. Do you find a place for this then in typography to kind of bring it full circle then back around to my passion and some of your teaching? You know, the typography part, um, it, it comes down to functionality and resources versus energy versus time spent. I mean, in general, we know that if typography is laid out well, then the reader will understand more and will understand it easier. 
and will enjoy it more to read it. Um, and so the sustainability factor comes in when we have to be wordy or when we have to, um, you know, maybe we print something or we put something on the web and it's not legible. And then it takes up energy and it takes up resources and time that is wasted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is one, um, there was one question at the San Diego conference where somebody said, what would be a biomimetic typeface? Um, of course, I had to answer with Comic Sans because, or papyr- no, papyrus. Papyrus, I just, papyrus, I just yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's the most connected to nature. But it really is the one that is most efficient with the least amount of resources to be the most successful and have that signal antenna success between the reader and the piece. And so, you know, asking yourself, who is your audience specifically? Um, and who, how, how are they reading? What do they need? which we're already doing, like I said, those last principles are really just good design principles. And so just considering those from the beginning is absolutely necessary. Um, but it would be kind of fun to dig deeper into how nature would design a typeface to make it, make it an example and make it maybe design a typeface with, with those kinds of principles to see yeah. how that would turn out. I'm going to yeah. ponder, I'm going to ponder that yeah. and see what kind of uh, uh, That's awesome. gets to the surface and go from there. Uh, is there anything yeah. that, that I haven't touched on specifically asking you questions that you were really hoping to address uh, while we had our conversation? Um, right. No, uh, I, I was able to share with your viewers the most important things that are, you know, in my opinion, something's new to, to discover. I, I can't think of anything right now that I can. Okay. Um, so. Do you think that we're eventually going to find an opportunity to bring uh, the biomimicry into our studies here in a more um, just kind of natural natural yeah. part of our studies in graduate studies or in our undergrad? That's a good question. Um, you know, I'm slowly finding that and I had this conversation with many designers years ago when I was doing my first master's that it felt as if the design community was not necessarily interested so much in sustainability and, you know, biomimicry per se, but I'm seeing that there's a trend that there is more and more desire and maybe it's the changing of the generations. Maybe it's the changing of the climate. Maybe it's the changing of our time, but I'm really excited to see that, that designers are more interested in doing the right thing and to learning more about systems thinking. Um, I'm hoping that there are, you know, moments where we don't have to have words like sustainability and biomimicry mm. anymore, because the way we're going to do things are just pun intended by nature following those regulations or those principles. So it would yeah. be nice to not have to distinguish what is sustainable and what's not. And it would be nice to not say, hey, let's do it the biomimetic way, because it's really just the only process that we have. To right, make right. That's good clarity. Yeah, we'll just do it the natural way and we don't have to yeah. write, put those words to it. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it seems, it hit me the other day that everything good kind of has to have this disclaimer. You know, it's like, yeah. this is sustainable, yeah. this is green, this is healthy, this is natural, this is organic. But all the other stuff that doesn't have the disclaimer is kind of the not so good parts. And so it would be nice if we could get rid of the labels and just have no not good parts. Anymore. Yeah, I, I agree <laughs> completely. And I think I've seen the change like you're talking about as well. There's more interest. Yeah. And, and I've kind of set that to um, where people are, are, sure, we're still global as we think, but people are more concerned about their community, you know, the, the yeah. space that's around them and the people that are around mm-hmm. them. And there seems to be mm-hmm. more opportunity if we work from the community level yeah. and just kind of let that take its natural progression. Yeah. And yes. if everyone's focusing yeah. on something local, it's happening yeah. all around us rather than Absolutely. trying to do a large global uh, approach. Yes. So. And you just hit one of the life's principles, building from the bottom up. And that's how nature does it too. Um, there's no way that one species can worry about the whole continent or the whole country or the whole region. You just start with your own space and you start to build that to make it strong and resilient. And then it will, it will grow out. But yeah, definitely. Um, it's the same for agriculture where we have farming practices that if we were to go back to a model where there's local farms providing enough food for the local people, then we wouldn't need big, huge, large factory farms that have all kinds of problems. 
um, and we could have you know less carbon because it doesn't have to be transported so much and people might be happier and healthier that way so yeah going back to the local is definitely the right thing and and with that said i think there's a lot of conversations lately that i'm hearing on other podcasts and and blogs that people in the past have felt that one individual doesn't have a good impact that whatever one person does you know it's fine and dandy but it doesn't really have a change connected to it but now we're finding that one person can have a, a pretty substantial impact and especially when it's a more amount of people having that same little action make a bigger impact than having a few people doing the right things all the way so um there's a there's a saying that there are more animals saved through the meatless monday than through all the vegans combined that mm. don't eat meat ever because through the sheer number of individuals that are doing the meatless monday so i agree with you fully that you know if if there is, if designers feel that there's potential for this biomimicry and for the nature-based or life-centered approach, then, you know, tapping into your own community, finding those people that are already kind of interested in it, and then exploring those processes to spread from there would help the biomimicry meme a lot because there's only a few of us and we can't be everywhere. And so, yeah, being locally attuned and having those relationships locally is the, is the right way to do it. That's perfect. Yeah. I was going to ask you if you had a message for the students. But that seems to be it. Yeah, that, that seems to be a perfect message. Do you want to add anything for the message to the students? Or or would you say that's kind of the drive? I, I, something that I wanted to share and that I share a lot with my mm -hmm. students is that I never thought I could, first of all, I never thought I could find a job making money by being creative. That That was way back. And then I never thought that I could infuse my passion for the outdoors and for animals with my work. And here I am and it's doing, it's going. It's just suddenly combined into this thing yeah. and it's, it's growing. So what I would like to say to students and maybe designers that are established, it's tap into your passion and values and bring it into your work because we need everyone to speak up now. We need to have those values represented. We can't just base our decisions off of what has been done in the past because it's a new time. So we really have to have everyone's voice as part of the conversation. So don't be afraid to step into that and to to let the path follow you, let you bring you to a point where you suddenly wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm doing this, you know? So yeah. it's really, it's an exciting path and it's worthwhile and might be scary, but it's absolutely worth it. So just do it. That's awesome. That is awesome. I can't thank you enough. Um, we're just about out of time and yeah, the conversation can continue, and it should. Yes. So I'm challenging all of uh, all the listeners and viewers of the podcast, um, students, design educators, designers, or anyone who's just found uh, our conversation uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Take take those steps and and start seeing if you can continue to spread that life centered yeah. life centered approach. Yeah. Michelle, yeah, reach out to me. Yeah. If there's any questions, everybody's welcome to reach out. Yeah. Today want to learn more definitely yeah so um where where can they find you then if they want to get a hold of you and reach out to you um i think there are some well there's a website called naturefactor.com that's maybe the easiest way i'm also on instagram under nature factor um but i can send you all those links and then you can add them to the podcast i definitely will yeah i'll add those on to uh the show notes both on the website and those will be on uh, iTunes and other podcast platforms. Right. And on the video uh, in YouTube, they'll be in the uh, the notes below and everything. So we'll definitely get those shared uh, with all listeners and viewers. Michelle, it's been a perfect conversation. Um, thank you and, so much. Yeah. Well, I thank you so much. Uh, you have a strong message. And I hope that I can assist with uh, sharing that and getting um, some more momentum under, you under already that. did. <laughs> it was really great. Fantastic. Thank you for doing all those podcasts. They have been just so inspiring and so high quality. Oh, goodness. Really that, that means a lot. Yeah. I appreciate that. And um, yeah. I couldn't do it without the great design educators uh, and artists that are willing to share their stories. Yeah, so. we've got a good community. Definitely. All right. Until the next time, Michelle, we'll have you back sometime in the future. I, I would love that. I would love it too. Thank Alrighty. you so much for having yeah. me. Yeah. Thank you. You too. Bye, Bye. now. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode. The Design Deducts podcast can be found at designdeducts.com 
That's D-E-S-I-G-N-D-E-D-U-X.com, where you can listen to the podcast or watch the video version of the podcast, as well as find links to the guests and the topics discussed during each episode. The Design Deducts podcast can be found on most podcast listening platforms. You can join us on social media through Instagram and Twitter via at design underscore deduct, on Facebook as Design Deducts Podcast, and join us on YouTube at Design Deducts for video versions of each episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, you can show your support on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash design underscore deducts. Once again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.